Good morning and welcome again to In-Town Presbyterian Church. It's great to be in worship with you. We are wrapping up a 10-week study of an amazing letter, the letter to the Colossians. And I hope as that by now we've kind of discovered that the whole letter has been something of a commissioning. It's a commissioning to the Colossian church to take what Jesus has done within them and live it out that they are to come out of the world, the sphere of privatized religion, and to live into this new world that God is creating in Jesus, that they are live, to live into the lives of other people, that they are to bring the promises of God to bear upon the needs of the world, both physical as well as spiritual. And as I originally conceived of this sermon back, I guess, 10 weeks ago or 11 weeks ago, the title was Christ, Our Mission, because this final verse, this final passage is a very direct commissioning into the world to take the gospel into the needs of other people's lives. But we've talked about that again and again each week. And so what struck me as I studied this week is more his commissioning to pray. And we haven't talked a lot about prayer from the pulpit, except in just kind of passing ways. And so I'm going to direct our attention really at the whole matter of prayer this morning. Let me read our passage, and then I'll pray for us and start. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would enable us to be not only individuals, but a church that is devoted to prayer, that is utterly dependent upon you, that sees our mission in this world as completely unattainable without your presence, your strength, and your power. Father, I pray that you would move in individual hearts in a new way this morning. Would you make us alive to the things that you are doing in this world? Would you make us alive to the hope of the gospel? Would you teach us what we need to see from this passage? Would you let us respond in faith, no matter where we are on the spiritual spectrum this morning? Move us closer to Jesus and closer to the hope that is found in his life and death and resurrection. We pray in his name. Amen. Our daughter, our seven-year-old daughter, Abby, always amazes me by her prayer life. And I don't mean that by saying that, that she is always and constantly praying as I walk into her room, or that she is praised more than anyone else in our family, but that she actually has a very keen sense of God being at work in her daily life, that she's tuned in to God being alive in her world. She's quick to talk to God, quick to ask someone else to talk to God on, on her behalf, when things are happening that are disturbing her. And she's quick to see God at work in the circumstances of her life. She's tuned in. She's keenly aware that God is real and intimately involved with the workings of our family life and the workings of her life. Now, 
If you're skeptical of prayer, skeptical of someone actually asking God for something and it being answered, then maybe you think, well, she's only seven. She's just mimicking what she's learned from her parents and what she's been taught. And maybe that's partially true at this age. She's very impressionable. But here in Colossians, you have Paul commending to the Colossian church and to us by extension a very childlike prayer life, a very childlike dependence upon God, that it is in our prayer life that we develop an awareness of God being alive and active in our world. He's going to tell us three things simply about prayer, that as Christians, our prayer life is to be continual, it's to be watchful, and it's to be thankful. Let's talk about firstly about continual. What does it mean to pray continually? John Coltrane was one of the greatest saxophonists of all time, and he played with Miles Davis, Dizzy Gillespie. He also had his own quintet that he led for many years. The thing about John Coltrane is that for a long time, he was hooked on heroin and almost died of a drug overdose. And after emerging from that coma, emerging from all of that trauma, he became a Christian and said, I'm going to live differently, and I need a new reality in my life. When he recovered, he began to record again, and some of his best jazz came after that point in his life, including what most consider to be his magnum opus, a love supreme, that he considered to be an offering to God of his very soul, that that was how he thought about that 32 minutes of recorded work, was that it was, it was a prayer. It was an offering to God of his whole life. After one utterly extraordinarily, extraordinary rendition of A Love Supreme Live, he stepped off the stage and put down his saxophone and said simply, Nunc Dimittis, which is the opening line for a Latin prayer. Lord, now let thy servant depart in peace, for mine eyes have seen your salvation. Coltrane felt that he could never play the piece more perfectly. And if his whole life had been lived for that 32 moments of utter devotion to God, of prayer, then life would have been worth it. He was ready to go. Now, if you ask almost any Christian about prayer, you'll hear on one hand, it is one of the most vital spiritual disciplines of life, that I'm utterly dependent upon God, and yet almost to a person, we're utterly unhappy with our prayer life with how much we pray, with how we pray, and we want to become more satisfied. When many of us here pray continually, we think Paul is just kind of piling on. He's asking us to do more, to be more disciplined. And I share that illustration from John Coltrane, because as we imagine prayer, as we hear this instruction, a lot of us instinctually think of solitude that we instinctually think of going into a closet, being cloistered, being quiet, and privately talking to God. But most of us have jobs and responsibilities and relationships to maintain. How can we pursue prayer continually and still maintain our responsibilities in the other places that God has called us? How are we supposed to pray continually? It seems very impractical, if not impossible. Now, let's take, take a step back just a moment and talk about what we've been reading in the whole letter to the Colossians, because we've been hearing about this mystery that is revealed in Jesus Christ, that he is the Messiah, that he is the king of the world. 
A king who doesn't come in power, wielding the sword, demanding submission, but he comes saying, my life for yours. My life as an offering for you. That is also his kingship not only brings salvation to individual souls, free for the asking, free for the taking. Through nothing that you do, you can be in relationship with God because of what Jesus has done. But not only does the salvation happen to individual people, that God is at work in the person of Jesus reconciling the entire cosmos to himself. Christian prayer presumes that God is actively involved in all areas of the world, in all the ways that you live your life, in all of your responsibilities, that God is alive and at work in the midst of those things not simply in the so-called spiritual discipline of private prayer. It presumes that God is not aloof or uninterested or needs to be manipulated to enter into your world, but that he is already at work in all of the areas of life. The mystery was his idea, his commitment, his promise. And in prayer, he invites you and I to participate in the work that he is already doing throughout the world. Because he is redeeming all of life, then all of life can be, all of life must be an act of worship. Not only as you actually kneel in the work of private prayer, which is certainly necessary, but in every activity that you're engaged in, whether it's a conversation with someone about who Jesus is, whether it's studying for an exam, whether it's playing catch with your son, or whether it's playing great jazz that all of life can be an act of worship. And if you're a Christian, all of life must be an act of worship. It must be a prayer uttered to God in all of the work that we are called to do. And we see this, that a lack of prayerfulness then is not primarily a lack of discipline. It's not primarily a lack of guarding those times of solitude. Prayer is a discipline. Prayer does take devotion or steadfastness, as Paul says in verse 5 here. But the reason that you and I don't pray is because that we are not trying, it's not because we're not trying hard enough. It's because though we say Jesus is king of the entire world and his work matters to my whole life, we still live with a divided heart. Though we might say that we're dependent upon him in all things, our practical confidence is in something else entirely, something other than Jesus, our own resources, our own ingenuity, our own jobs, our own wealth, our own education. Paul is saying here that prayer is a way of leaning upon Jesus, of being utterly dependent upon him. And if we're not in the practice of praying regularly throughout our whole day, then it tells us that our practical and functional confidence is in something or someone else. That's what we have to wrestle with. It's not that you're not being disciplined enough. It's that something else has got your heart. Some other confidence has your mind and your soul, that you are placing your trust in something other than Jesus. That's why you and I don't pray as we should. Sure, we're busy. Sure, we have a lot of competing voices for our intentions, Uh, for our attention. But until we get to the point where we disbelieve in our own power and sovereignty, where we doubt our own ability to live life, we won't pray in the way that we should. We won't depend upon the power and the sovereignty of God instead. Prayer 
essentially, is a continual and a conscious devotion of all of life to God and his purposes. It's saying, nunc dimittis, my eyes have seen salvation, and so I pray. You see, prayer is not simply speaking, but it's seeing. Prayer is seeing an alternative reality. And therefore, Paul says, not only pray continually, let all of life be an act of prayer, but pray watchfully. Pray with watchfulness. Never before have we had access to so many tools to help us maneuver and arrange our world, down to the very minute and minutia. We have email, cell phones, laptops, iPads, iPods, computers, social media that are all mobilized to give us a sense of control, to move through our daily lives and give us command over all of our relationships, a better mastery over our calendar and workflow. And it's very easy, even as one who says, I am fully dependent upon God, that he is at work in every corner of my life for us to quickly grow more confident in the way that we master our world, that we grow confident in strategies and techniques and workflow than we do in the way that God is at work. And so we go through life in a very prayerless, prayerless manner. Sociologist Peter Berger has written extensively on this, and he actually wrote in the 60s before a lot of this technology was even available. And he says that we conceive of all human problems as technical problems. We bring our culture, our social worlds into existence as a bulwark against chaos to preserve order. He says that through our strategies and ingenuity, human beings are world builders. And we, li- we believe that we live in a world that is very makeable. In chapter 1, we read this stunning, astonishing claim that all things were created by Jesus, that all things hold together in Jesus, that he is at work reconciling all things That instead of living in a makeable world, instead of living in a world that we can control and manipulate through strategies and methods, that we live in Jesus' world. That we live in the world that he has created and also sustains every moment of the day. In prayer, we are not only speaking to God, but we're seeing. We're seeing that reality. We're seeing that Jesus is upholding all things through his word. We're seeing that we don't live in a makeable world, but that the one who did make all things is accessible, is merciful, is loving, is inviting you and I into a great purpose of sharing with him in reconciling all things and making all things new. As we pray, we're having our view of reality enlarged, realigned, that our view of God and what is important to him is being radically altered from what we had normally assumed. And we are joining him in an uprising against the things uh, as they are, against the chaos that's in our own life. I quoted for you in your bulletin Karl Barth, who says, to clasp the hands of prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. We begin to see, not just speak, but we see that the things in our world, the powers that hold people in oppression, the things that tempt us to slavery, to money and acclaim, to sinful patterns, to degrade the environment because of our pursuit of any end for profit. 
They're being seen for what they are as we pray. We are joining God himself in overturning the rule that they have in our own lives and in the lives of our world. Watchfulness, he says in verse 5, that we're looking to God to answer our prayers, that we're asking for the kingdom to come, just like we prayed in the Lord's Prayer. Bring your kingdom to bear upon the needs and brokenness in my own life and in our world. And then we're watching, we're looking expectantly for that to happen, that we believe that he's actively engaged in our world. And so we have a sense of watchfulness in our prayer life. In the world that Paul inhabits, God is alive and he's doing something mysterious but visible and powerful. He's working out his salvation. He's undoing all that is sad and broken about our world. And Paul prays. Paul, this highly educated, this astonishingly talented person, if anyone could be dependent upon his own strengths and talents, it would be Paul. And yet he prays like a child, dependent upon Jesus for everything. He prays because he's convinced that God is at work, and he wants to be a part of that work. And he commends to the Colossian church to pray as well, so that you too can be engaged in what God is doing. My daughter Abby prays because she's, she naturally assumes that God is at work and alive in his, in his world and in her world, and that he's accessible. Watchfulness is living with that sort of assumption. It's seeing our relationships, our resources, our schedules, our calendars, our workflow as places that Jesus himself is invading and asking to be a part of. We begin to see them if we're watchful as opportunities to be a part of what he is doing, to see his salvation at work in the most mundane details of our life. John Stott, the great preacher and pastor, in England in the last century, died recently. And he says, prayer is not a convenient device for imposing our will on God or for bending his will to ours, but the prescribed way of subordinating our will to his. It is by prayer that we seek God's will, embrace it, and align ourselves with it. Every true prayer is a variation on the theme, your will be done. Your will be done asking for that and then being watchful, expecting, waiting for it to happen, expecting that God will do things in your life and in your church that would, not, would be impossible other than his direct intervention. Pray continually, he says. Pray in all areas of life. Let all areas of life be an act of devotion, an act of worship, an act of prayer to God. And then pray watchfully, expecting that he'll be at work. And then finally, he says, pray in a thankful way, or pray thankfully. When Paul gets word of the Colossian church, that this church has sprung up in the midst of the pagan Roman Empire, that in spite of all of the challenges that this little outcropping of belief is happening, he is, ex- ex- he is unbelievably thankful. He's unbelievably overwhelmed at what is going on. He's thankful. Why is he thankful? Because it's one more indication that the mystery that has been revealed in Jesus is true. It's one more indication to Paul that the person that he met on the Damascus Road was Jesus himself. 
It's one more reason for him to believe that life is not dependent upon his talent to control life, but upon God being real and intervening in the world. The pagans of his day are turning to God, and love is springing forth in this church. There's true belief. There's change. There's newness of life happening, and Paul had no part of it. Paul has never met these people in Colossians. He didn't plant the church. He simply is hearing about it springing forth, and it reminds him that God is at work in spite of him. God is at work even when he is asleep. God is constantly at work, and so he's thankful. Thankful people are very conspicuous in our world because thankfulness normally goes with a lot of other very unusual and very obvious virtues, humility, peacefulness, submissiveness. These things are very conspicuous and unusual in our world. Thankful people are very conspicuous. A thankful person is one who realizes that something good that they have in their lives is the result of someone else, that they have been given a gift. That's a thankful person is that they realize that some good, something that they possess now that they didn't possess previously has been given by someone. That's someone who is thankful that they've received something of value apart from their own work. Christian thankfulness comes when you realize the gospel, when you realize that you have been given the most amazing gift that anyone could possibly want, that you've been given access to God himself, that you have been granted as a free gift salvation, eternal life, forgiveness, mercy. When you realize that, when you realize through no merit, no working, no worth of your own, that you've been given the gift of salvation, you're thankful. And also, as you realize once and for all that you live in a world that is outside of your control, and yet you have seen God and his work, the one who controls all things, show up in your life in remarkable ways, in ways that teaches you that he can be trusted, you become thankful. A thankful person is a dependent person. And here's the trick, and there's really no way of getting around it. That you can't learn thankfulness while you're spinning around trying to control your own chaos, trying to control and manipulate your world. You cannot learn dependency. You can't grow in thankfulness as you are living in what Peter Berger calls a makeable world. If you believe that your world is makeable through your techniques and strategies, then any good thing that comes, you'll be thankful to who? Yourself. But if you believe that you are utterly dependent upon God, that he is the one that's ultimately in control, then when you receive the gospel, when you receive any type of benefit, any type of good, you naturally begin to give thanks to God. Those who are thankful have experienced God showing up when they were at the end of themselves. Prayer takes that thankfulness, that awareness that God is alive in the world and says, God, do it again. Do it again. Do what you have done in my life previously, in the life of this church previously, in the life of my neighborhood, in the life of the world. Do it again. We are dependent upon you to bring forth goodness, to bring forth redemption. I am utterly dependent upon you in my own life and in the life of the world. We begin to be thankful when we see God show up not only 
in the calamities of life that come upon us, but in choosing to put yourself in a place where you are forced to be dependent, where you are at the end of yourselves, where it's obvious that you are out of control, that you have no safety net. That's how you learn thankfulness. When you choose to build a relationship with a difficult person because you want them to experience what you have experienced in Jesus. When you decide to give more than you think you should or than you can, and you ask God to show up in that gap, you learn dependence. You learn thankfulness. When you decide to forgive someone that hurts you deeply, you realize your own forgiveness more fully, and you grow in thankfulness. When you stand before God proclaiming nothing but Jesus, saying that I am utterly dependent upon you for salvation, you learn dependence. You learn thankfulness. Paul's view of God's intentions in the world are colossal. He believes that God is reclaiming the entire world in Jesus, that he is remaking all things. And as he sees little evidences of that happening, as he sees the Colossian church as evidence of that, he's exceedingly thankful. He is amazed. He's astounded. He's humbled. And he's thankful. Prayer enables us to look, to see into our everyday way of life. And instead of fitting God into our world, into our agenda, into our purpose, to adjust our purpose, our agenda, our world into his, into his world. It begins to allow us to see life for what it really could be and reality as it really is. Paul invites each of us into a new way of life, a new way of seeing, of seeing the whole world differently through prayer. But be careful. Because not only is prayer very demanding, and it takes discipline, but it will change you. It will change you from the inside out. One of my professors in seminary says, not being changed by prayer is sort of like standing in the middle of the spring rain without getting wet. It's hard to stand in the center of God's acceptance and love without it getting all over you. Pray, pray, not because if you don't, God will be disappointed, but pray because Jesus has taken all of your sin and awfulness and he's given you all of his beauty and goodness. Pray so that you can see that more fully. Pray to live life more fully into that reality. Pray to be a part of bringing others into that reality as well. Pray not because if you don't, God will be mad at you, but pray because he is infinitely good and invites you into himself, even when you're unworthy, invites you into eternal life, eternal peace. Would you take hold of that now as we pray? Father, I pray for this church. I pray for in town that we would be a church of prayer, that we would devote ourselves to being dependent upon you, that we would take risks, that we would be courageous that we would live comfortably without a safety net because we know that you are ultimately in control, that you are ultimately the one who is powerful and sovereign over all of your creation. Lord, we pray that we would live into that new reality with great courage, with great faith. Father, I pray for individuals here who are feeling that they just can't pray, 
that they feel that you are so far away from them, I pray that you would move close to them, that you would move near to them, that they would sense your presence in a new way so that they could talk to you, they could have a relationship with you. Father, for those here who may not know you, may not be convinced that prayer is actually true, the true pathway to God, I pray that you would also move into the places in their lives where there, are, there is skepticism, there is doubt, there is fear of losing control. Father, I pray, make all of us new. Make all of us prayerfully concerned about what is going on in our world and inviting you into it. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.